Hello, this is Swami Janeshwar, Swami J. This recording is a podcast by Ron Fraser, who I have come to know quite well through an interfaith group in Florida, as well as private conversations. Ron is of the Baha'i faith and asked me if he could have some of my comments on religion, mysticism, and yoga. He has also kindly allowed me to copy his podcast here for you. I hope you find the conversation enjoyable and insightful. Welcome. You're listening to a podcast of the Baha'is of Florida's Emerald Coast. I'm Ron Fraser. I'm talking today to Swami Janeshwara Bharati. How close did I come? I don't know. I don't get very close with it myself. I think of it <laughs> sort of cosmic humor. Give this monk a name that he can't pronounce properly himself. So, Swami, Swami Janeshwara Bharati is about as close go. as I can get. Okay. Which is why people... Which is why people call me Swami J for short. Swami J. And his website is swamij.com. And if you're interested at all in meditation, I think you'll find it very interesting. Swami and I have been talking for the last couple of months, really, about what it means to have unity among the religions. and uh, Years. Uh, years, actually. Yes, it's been a while. Uh, I guess, yes, I guess that topic does go back a ways. And we're not talking about the sameness of religion. Baha'is talk about how all the religions are one, and, and we do believe that, but we're not saying that the religions are the same. And what Swami and I have been talking about is what is the common thread that runs through the religions? So that's what I'm hoping we can talk about today. Swami, you want to kick off the discussion? Well, I think you just did. I find it a little awkward to deal with words like one and the same. They're too strong. To say that they're all the same or they're all one, when you look at it one way, you may see that they're the same or one, but then you look at it another way and you see that the, the world religions have you know, almost nothing in, in common. It's so much so that you, you cannot say that they're one. You know, for me, the, the the thing that's important about all this is is when I look at the state of the world and the way that that we as human beings keep having trouble with one another. And the part of this whole thing that I sort of passionately feel, if you look at the forest, any forest, and all the trees in the forest, it appears to me self-evident, without talking about philosophy or religion, just common sense, it just appears that every one of those trees has grown up out of the same ground in the floor, in the forest. And there's no problem with that. And what seems to me so self-evident, though we may disagree on how it works, is that all of humanity arose from the same source. And we may disagree about how that happened, whether it was divinely created or happened because of Darwin or whatever it is. But just just like the trees, when you, you look at the trees in the forest, they all came out of the same forest. The waves in the ocean are all of the same ocean. And it just seems to me so obvious that all of the religions and all of the leaders of those religions and the founders of the religions all emerged out of the same one source. And if we call that source the absolute reality or we call it God or whatever we may individually choose to call it, it just seems so, it screams out to me, 
obvious that we all arose from the same source. And if we as people all arose from this same source, whatever that is, then maybe all of the religions arose from the same source. You know, what about all governments and all cultures and all societies? They're all different, but they all arose from the same source. And we may all disagree on where we think this world is going and how it may end. But whether we're looking at religion or we're looking at, at modern science, it seems pretty evident that one of these days the sun, for example, is going to burn out. It's going to explode or it's going to burn out. So we know that there's going to be an end to this world. We, it came from somewhere and is going to somewhere. And so we as humans came from somewhere and we're going somewhere. And similarly, each of the world's religions, as we know them as, as, as human, not to say that they're only human organizations, but as human organizations and institutions, they were born, they're here, and, and they fade away. We see this throughout world history. And it, and it just seems to me that if we try to paste all of the world religions together and say that they're all one, that it's not accurate. If we try to paste them together and say that they have sameness in them, that, that that's not accurate. We, we may, as scholars or just personal private explorers, look for things in common. But that approach of trying to unify them, it seems to me, is doomed to failure because there are fundamental differences. But it seems so obvious that if somehow we could all simply make the simple observation, like the forests, the trees in the forest, that we all arose from the same source, maybe we wouldn't fight so much. Maybe we could get along better. Yeah, I don't think the Baha'is are expecting that the religions will somehow gravitate towards each other and become completely one. Uh, I think our belief is similar to what you've said, that, that they did arise from a single source, that they all are from a single divine source, and so they all need to be respected equally. Now, you and I were talking about Maybe you don't want to go into this yet. Maybe we'll save it for later. But the, the idea of of how each religion has a its own group of mystics, and that yes. the mystics have something in common. Do you want to go into that now, or you want to? Yeah, no, we can we can we can talk about that. It's uh, and there's there's a few different dimensions of this when I think about it. The simplest one that I think of is simply to contrast, and this is just a way of saying it. To contrast what I call vertical and what we can call horizontal, and in, its, in calling it horizontal, I'm not trying to speak of, of any meaning of left versus right, and in vertical, I'm not meaning higher and lower. It's just simply two dimensions so that the mind can hold this thing. And if we think horizontally, it, we were sort of to draw it out on a graph thing. We would go horizontally and we would list. Uh, from left to right in any order we wanted, the world religions. And the notion of vertical is that within each of those religions, there is another dimension. And one, one end of the spectrum is, is often called exoteric, and the other end of the spectrum is called esoteric. And it seems to be true that in virtually all of the religions, there are both polarities. The, the exoteric is the, ex, the external, the churches, the temples that we're all mostly familiar with. 
and the esoteric is the end of the spectrum that is the mystics, or in Sanskrit terms, is the yogis. Often it seems in our modern culture that we we contrast an exoteric religion with a different tradition that is really esoteric. And so we end up creating the appearance that there's, there's a conflict between two horizontal religions. And here at the moment I'm trying to, to intentionally to not use, to name the religion, so let your own mind think of any two religions. Within any one of those religions, there is an esoteric pole and there's an exoteric pole. One end of the spectrum is the mystics and the other is we could call the traditionalists or the orthodox. And so often the conflict is really between esoteric and exoteric, rather than being, which is the vertical, rather than the horizontal between different religions. So you can, you can even have that conflict within one religion. So yes. if we imagine just any one religion, uh, the listeners can, can imagine their own religion, whatever that happens to be. You have people who uh, run the meetings and make the rules and, and take care of mowing the grass, and, and uh, then you have people who are uh, more mystical, who want to be by themselves and contemplate the scriptures and, and maybe do some kind of practice with meditation or prayer or something. Well, interestingly, it may be the guy mowing the grass who is the mystic, because I, I would make a different parallel, that in all likelihood, the exoteric person is probably the one who wants to be on the board of directors and wants to organize things and make uh -huh. things happen and, and arrange the potluck dinners and, and is, is very involved in those things, which is, and as soon as we say that way, it sounds like I'm saying that the, the, the organizer cannot be a mystic, and I'm not trying to make that statement. But the guy out mowing the lawn may be more inclined to doing that than to being a board of directors organizer. So we can, I think we can only talk about these in, in very, I don't know, broad general terms. But mm -hmm. it seems to be, if, if you think of any of the religions, any of the cultures, that the people who are the mystics, the esoteric end of the spectrum, end up either gently or forcibly pushed out of the culture. They're the people who end up mowing lawns or end up living in the deserts or in the mountains and more alone. And part of that may be because it's their preference and part of it may be because the exoteric people, the orthodox traditionalists, don't understand them and, and sort of push them out. There's a phenomenon that, that can be likened to a ladder, like a, a ladder that you climb. And, and you can put, I don't care how many rungs you want to put on a ladder, whether 4 or 10 or 20. But the notion is, and, and I'm not trying to make one person inherently better than the other. That's a danger in this, but it's the comparison needs to be said. If you imagine a rung, let's just pull, imagine a rung that has a, a ladder that has ten rungs. If you have climbed up on the first three rungs of the ladder, there's seven more rungs beyond you, but you haven't been on them yet. You know about rungs one, two, and three, which is the one you're standing on, but you don't know about the other rungs yet. If you climbed up to rung number seven, you know about rung number seven plus the six before that, but you've yet to see the other rungs. So what can happen is th those who are the traditionalists, the orthodox, and again, I believe this, has happened, this is true within any of the religions, are often the people who have not climbed the higher rungs. And, and obviously there's exceptions to this comment. I'm just talking about in a general way. But the mystics have climbed more rungs of the ladder, and they've intuited the... the I guess what you could call the higher principles or experiences or direct experience within their own religion or tradition. 
And so, hence, the two, the two people seem to have different worldviews. And one does not understand the other. And, and often, the, the traditionalist who doesn't understand the mystic or the yogi or the sage, the seer, often what they have to do is take that other person and reduce them to pathology. So that they say either that they are a confused person, you know, they've fallen off the path, and there are many other ways of saying it because it's simply not understood. And this is simply another piece of that, what I'm calling the vertical dimension. So as you know, sometimes I say of myself playfully, I'm a verticalist because because this is the path I, I follow is the one is one of direct experience and, and, and that phenomenon of climbing the ladder. Others, the exoteric traditional view may may even strongly say, no, 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 don't try to climb ladders. That's just not what, if God wanted you to climb ladders, then that would have been there. The other side of that argument is, well, guess what? It is there. So we each have a choice whether to climb those ladders or, or not. And in some sense, I would say, when you take it down to an individual person, I use the term, the phrase, that it's a choice. But in another sense, it's not a choice at all. It's that something that stirs in the heart and the mind that says, I, I want to go to the subtler, deeper end. And it may not even know the words for it. I'm recalling conversations that you and I have had in the past. In the past, As you know, I, I don't know the Baha'i writings very well, but we've had discussions about the four valleys and the seven valleys. I had never heard about those until we had those discussions. And when I look at those, I, it just brings a smile to my face and a tear in my eye because it's so clear to me that Baha'u'llah, I say this respectfully, truly understood in direct experience what he was talking about. And, and whether he's a prophet or why, well, I don't have that information. But it clearly appears to me that this writings, those writings, that piece of the Baha'i writings, seems to me, as a non-Baha'i person saying this, that is very, very much on the mystical end of the spectrum. And there, there may be others who, reading those same words, it just it doesn't register with them, goes over their head, it just gets missed. That's not said as an insult. So my, my guess is that within your, a Baha'i group of people, good, wonderful human beings, that some are on leaning towards the esoteric end of the spectrum and some are leaning towards the exoteric. It's simply in this phenomenon of, of what I'm calling verticalism, just people are different places at different times. It's actually, I don't think, terribly dissimilar from developmental psychology, though I'm not trying to make religion and psychology one and the same. But in any system of developmental psychology, they may use different words to explain it, but someone who's two months old is different than someone who's two years old and is different from someone who's 20 years old. There's a, there are developmental processes that are one of, you can call it, either growing, becoming something, or, or awakening to something higher that you already are. And so, again, I just see that as part of this vertical process. So some of the conflict that we might experience inside a single religion could be because of people being at different rungs of the ladder right. that you're talking about, and some of the conflicts that we could find among different religions yes. could also be because a, a mystic in one religion is looking at the ex, what you refer to as the exoteric yes. people in another religion, some of the rules and and uh, or vice versa. And it seems to be, 
and maybe this is my bias speaking, but it seems to be mostly the vice versa. Because one of the things that seems to happen to the, to the mystic as they go in that direction is they start to intuit and, or have direct experience or, or shift of opinions or paradigm shift, whatever you want to call it. They seem to be the ones who are having the greater shift towards the realization of the, that there is some commonality. And as that commonality becomes seen, that individual person becomes more accepting of all others. And it seems to be more those who have less the sense of that commonality, less the sense of moving on that mystic journey, who end up having the arguments. And that, that argument very often manifests between so-called different religions. And even within the religions, and I don't obviously know if this is true of Baha'i because I don't, I don't know the detailed history, and it has not been that long since Baha'i was founded, but if we look at the other religions who have been around for a very long time, they turn into subsets, you know, whether we call them denominations or brand new religions, you know, or sects. There's a, div a dividing process as, as humans end up with different opinions. They have a, a disagreement on something. Somebody starts a new group and initially they call it a cult. Then it becomes called a sect then a, then a denomination. And then after it passes, some test of time, then it gets worthy of, in some minds, being called a, a, brand, a new religion. But there's this, there's this branching out process. And so th those seem to be on that exoteric end. They start out, as we all can read, I don't want to try to be the scholar, because I'm not, to give examples, but what seems to happen often is that some mystic shows up in, in, in an exoteric traditional setting, and starts speaking the, those principles more clearly in direct experience that are, uh, that are the different rungs on the ladder. And it, it rings true to some people. They're interested in this, and they end up starting a new thing. And then after some period of time, the boards of directors come along, and so to speak. I'm smiling as I say that. And the in, in, in what was started with mystic vision of one person turns into another brand new sect or denomination, and, and we've spawned another new religion. And nothing wrong with that. And, but again, we, we have this horizontal phenomenon and we have a vertical phenomenon. And it does often seem like once a fresh mystic, and I, don't call, I, I hope it's okay to use the word mystic because I don't know what else word to use. Yeah, I don't know what else to use either. Mystic, prophet, you know, avatar, divine incarnation, that's where we can all get into arguments over what to call that, but... But some special person with that some intuitive or something special insight comes along and some people gain from that wisdom and then give it a few years or decades or centuries and, and it gets turned into, you know, it, it becomes an exoteric sect or denomination. And again, I'm not being a critic of that. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. it's, it, I'm just saying it seems to be built into the, it seems to be the, built into the, the nature of the way the universe works. And, and humanity within that. That might be one reason why in the Baha'i writings we're warned about creating rituals. Mm -hmm. That the, I think the rituals are more on the exoteric dimension of what you're talking about. Uh, so we, we've, well, we've talked before about how one, one group in one religion, which will be nameless, uh, was arguing about when you kneel in prayer, what direction your toes should point. 
you know, should they point towards the front or the back? And and this was really considered to be quite a large problem. Yeah. And it's it's hard to imagine a mystic really worrying too much about what direction the toes are pointing. That, that seems way down on the exoteric dimension yeah. of the scale. Now, I would, to my thinking, the, the notion about the comments you just made about ritual are valid. And at the same time, I smile because I think if, I, if we think of just a typical person, imagine a person that you run into in, for whatever reason has suffered the kicks and blows of life, whatever that means, in behaviors and consequences and, and all of that, and says, I think I need to do something different in my life. And, and in whatever form that is, whether it's in the form of, you know, turning towards God or turning towards a religion or tor- turning towards that, that inner divinity or that call or whatever form that takes, person ends up with some other people that says, essentially, I want to do something different. What do I need to do? And so trying to wisely follow in the footsteps of others who have gone before. And so, any one of us would say something like, well, one of the things you need to do is, you, it seems like, we might not say this too bluntly, but your life is kind of in chaos. You know, you need to have some order in your life. So it means eat good food, get regular sleep, do some exercise every day, start to structure a balanced life. Well, that's called ritual. See, so there's nothing inherently wrong with ritual. It's when the ritual turns into some, something happens to it and, it and it becomes that other meaning of ritual. And, and we've lost the reason why the toes are, are, are turned in a certain way. I don't even know what the reason is for that. But a lot of things that, that start out as common sense and in fact are ritualistic because we're following a ritual, we're following a routine, end up becoming something very different. So... I could also, I mean, we could we could argue both sides. We can say ritual is not good, and on the other hand, we say, but but having some routine, some regularity in a healthy lifestyle is a very good thing to do. So, is ritual useful? Absolutely, ritual is useful. Can ritual be a handicap or an obstacle or an obstacle? Absolutely. So, which way are we using it? Well, I think. What I was talking about is the kind of ritual where I, I come to you and I criticize you because you're not following my ritual. Yeah. That as long as you have your ritual and, and it helps you to lead a more balanced life, that's great. But if I start to impose my ritual on you and right. you have to do this at 7 o'clock, it's not good if you do it at 6 o'clock. You have to right. do it at 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Now we start to have problems. Right. And especially if I say you're, you're probably not going to go to heaven if you do it at six o'clock. You, if you want to go to heaven, you have to do it at seven o'clock. Well, and again, most I, I think most of these describing of rituals is at that horizontal level. Mine right. is better than yours, kind of thinking. And and yet the the one who is pursuing that vertical dimension is going to wisely, correctly see that I need to I need to regulate my life in some positive way. And, and so I need to follow somebody's suggestions or make up my own of what ritual I want in my life. So while there are, may not be rituals in a, in a particular religion, and, and uh, so I mean, I don't, know the, I don't know how this 
fits with, with Baha'i. So you're saying that in Baha'i writings, no, we don't want to do ritual. And yet at the same time, you have some, I don't know what you would call principles. And I, I, to me, I think this happens within all of the religions. And I think this is part of the, part of the, the reason that we end up with different sects and denominations because they have different standards. So you take any one of the, of the large, well-known world religions and, and pose the question, is there a universal standard of rituals? And the answer seems to be no. They, they, they're all doing things differently. And so we don't need to fight between which ritual is better than the other. But if we, it's the, the throwing the baby away with the bathwater sort of thing. If we, if we throw out the notion of ritual and we become so eclectic, so much of a claimed mystic in our, in our modern culture where you and I live, where there's, there's a lot going on. We're bombarded with all sorts of sensory input. And if we don't do something, to have routine in our life, if we don't either create our, no, our own ritual or find a ritual, a, tr- a ritual within a religion that we feel compatible with, then then we're, the, we really stand this chance of just getting lost in in the chaos. And and so, I'm just saying that is ritual useful? Yes. Is ritual useful? No. Both are true statements, I think. And uh, find the ritual that matches ourselves as individual, but. So the the ritual is useful, but please let us not fight so much over which way the toes are. Right. <laughs> you know. Are there other dimensions that you've been thinking about? Well, we were talking about esoteric and exoteric, and and I, if we hold those as sort of polarities, and then there's a spectrum in in the middle, which is that rungs on the ladder phenomenon. Uh, there's a couple other polarities that. I don't hear talked about very often, but these principles are very well known amongst the scholars and academic people who study the nature of religions. And, and if we as lay people who are just trying to live in the world and, and relive, lead a spiritual or religious life, whatever that means to us, it's really useful to understand these differences. And one of them, it, and I know in saying this, it sounds like I'm just dumping out so much philosophy, but it's not. There's something very practical in knowing these polarities and, and the, the shades of gray in the middle. And one is, is the reference to God as either transcendent or God as imminent. And this is one of the places in which we humans, we can end up with fights and arguments. And I'm not, this is not my idea. This is, you can, you can Google this, you can search it, you can find that there is imminence and there is transcendence within the fields of religion and philosophy. And the notion of transcendent means that there's something beyond. So when somebody speaks of God as transcendent, one of the examples of that is the notion that says, you know, I am here and God is there as the overseer, however we may conceptualize that, but I am here and God is there. God transcends this world. The other notion is the suggestion that says, well, God is, if God is infinite, God is in all places and all times and in all objects, and there's nothing but God. That's God as imminence or imminent. And so to one person who, who has the religious or worldview that God is transcendent, I'm here, God's there, runs into the person that says God is everywhere, that you can end up with a conflict. And the person that says, well, God is everywhere, like the yeast in the bread, one of the one of the ways of holding that, the person who sees it that way sees the other person possibly as having a limited view. 
And the reason I'm mentioning this is if we're aware of these two polarities, maybe we as individuals can find a way to hold the fact or, or the notion, the suggestion, that both of these worldviews can coexist and that there's, that there's room for both. If I give you a cup of water or two people a cup of water, then I say, is, it, is the water cool or is it wet? Well, the answer is yes. One person says, well, it's cool. The other person says it's wet, and we're describing the same water. Mm -hmm. And I understand that that's a simplified way of saying it, but to be aware that there is a, the, the notion in, in informal religion studies, of all the religions, that there is the notion of transcendence and imminence, or the transcendent God or the imminent God. And if we know that, if we know that, then you know, my own particular view holds both, that, there, that there's room for both. And so I know often I'll run into individuals who, who simply do not share the imminence view, that, that uh, do not see that God is being everywhere. See, you know, we, we as people are here and God is over there. And if I'm aware, if I keep myself aware of this spectrum, then I, I can see that other person is just, that's where they are. And it can be a greater acceptance. And, uh, okay. and the other polarity has, has much to do with the mystic view. Uh, and this too is not my concept. It's the concept of a material cause and efficient cause. One of the examples of that is a loaf of bread. So what created the loaf of bread? We can say, well, the baker created the loaf of bread. Or we can say wheat created the loaf of bread. Wheat is the material cause in philosophy, religion, religion and philosophy. Wheat is the material cause of the bread. The baker is the efficient cause. So when we, in our religious studies or speculations or beliefs, when we talk about things like the creation of the world and creation of us as human beings, most of the time, each one of us and individuals, you can, you can, you read a book, you can see which way that particular author or listen to a speak, a speech, you can tell which way that person is speaking, whether they're talking in terms of material cause or efficient cause. And, and so one is saying that we all came from the same substratum. And, and here we're talking material cause. Then the other question says, well, who was the one who did the creating? And we can get in arguments over that or, or agreements. But to be aware of the polarity that there are two subjects going on is extremely useful. So in terms of meditation, the, the, the arena that I know something about, what we are mostly doing, not 100%, but what we're mostly doing is we're, we're working through that level of material cause. And we say, okay, here is this personality that I have and these actions out here in the world. But something inside, some intuition says, but wait a minute, this name was given to me at birth in a hospital. That name is not who I am. I was a being, then I got a college degree, and then I say I am a so-and-so. And it's like, wait a minute, I, I was who I am before I had that degree. So we start layering on identity after identity after identity. We end up saying that this is who I am. Then when that is threatened, we respond to it. We get stressed out. We develop diseases. And all in the name of defending who I am that I am not. So in the process of meditation, here I'm using meditation as a universal sense, not in the sense of any particular religion or, or deity. It's a process of saying, let me temporarily set aside my false identities. And it may start with identities like my degree, 
You, you may be a parent, and you say, am I a father? Am I a mother? Well, yes, of course I am. And do I have duties to go along with that? Of course. But wait a minute. Before we had children, I still existed. So is it really ultimately true that who I am at the deepest level is a father or a mother? And you realize, no, this is not true. And so this process of contemplation and meditation, be still and know, this process, this introspective process, is one of tracing back through the levels of material cause so that I can you know, rest in my true nature, know my true self, however you want to say that. And, and this can be done either in the context of efficient cause as God the creator, or it can be done without it which is not meaning to promote atheism or opposition to God. It's simply saying that we're retracing the material cause back through the levels, and as I temporarily, momentarily, in, in, in some period of daily stillness and silence, temporarily let go of all of those false identities. And then I will know, and then each person has their own religion, their own belief, and what word they will put on that, whether they're resting then in their God nature or you know, or soul, or just, or, or giving it no name at all. And so, again, it, it, there's the difference between the material cause and the efficient cause. And, and it's extremely useful to see that both are there. And, and uh, maybe we can, maybe we can do a better job of holding both of them. And, and it helps, certainly helps to, to understand and accept other people more who are coming from one or the other of those positions more than the other. So. I think you find both in the Baha'i writings, there's definitely the plenty of writings where God appears transcendent, that we do talk about yes. as God as being this separate deity that exists. One of the phrases is the self-subsisting. He's completely separate and yes. doesn't rely on anything but himself. But then there's also quotes like, I wish I could quote this exactly. The Baha'is that are listening say, are saying, you should know this one. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's something like, look within yourself and find me, that is God, yes. capital M, within you. Yes. So talks about purifying your heart for my descent, that, uh, you know, that this is where God belongs. Well, and There's what you just said, lots, to me, lots of little quotes like that. that touches on it, purifying my heart. Well, this is the part I need to do. And this has something to do in the, the context of this, what I'm calling materially efficient. So you're saying both are there. You're seeing both in the Baha'i writings. And I obviously don't know them well enough, but I know when I've, when I've read them, I see both in there. And when I've looked at the, the part that I just love is the four valleys and, and, and the seven valleys, I just I look at that and I see both ends of that in there. And they seem to go together. And not everybody's going to do both of them, but they seem to be there to me and they, and they seem to go together. And they also seem to be in all of the religions. Here, again, I'm not trying to say all religions are saying the same thing, but this is one of the, the qualities when I look at the, the writings of any one of the religions, I see both pieces in there. I see each of these polarities. Well, tell me something about Sanatana Dharma. This is one of the most fascinating talks that we've had in the past has been about Sanatana Dharma and I don't know if we can recreate that just on the fly like this. I don't know either if we can recreate that and uh, I have a little hesitancy in, in talking much about it because there are so many people in the world who are much more qualified than I am to talk about it. 
but classically sanatana dharma as a term and the word dharma and the terms hindu and hinduism end up commingled as if they're interchangeable terms and i don't have the data or, or or the quotes here in front of me to be able to support the the notion and i'm not trying to sell this idea but there's a generalized comment that in india which even the word India is a sort of new name in that region that we now know of India and all those traditions that emerged over thousands of years that the original term that they used to describe what they were talking about was Dharma and that it was only later because of other people, other cultures, other governments, other civilizations that the newer, more recent terms Hindu and Hinduism got used. And it's created the appearance that there is one, uh, what would you say, homogeneous group that's called that. It, it, it's, it would be a little like saying Americanism. Well, what, what is Americanism? What religion is Americanism? And you just, none of us would pose the question that way. But this is something similar if we talk about the Hinduism that is actually more cultural and uh, regional and so what's within that many 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 things and so if you try to find if you go to the other word dharma if you try to find a founder of dharma you won't find it you say who 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 was the founder and sanatana simply means eternal and the word dharma uh, let me try it like this if you and i were to sit here and have a conversation and we say you know I see that amongst the various religions and all this where we and philosophies and psychologies that we don't have all the answers. And yet there seems to be, if you and I were talking, we, we may end up saying, yet there seems to be something going on in the universe. And do I call it God or is it something else? It seems to be part God. It seems to be part physics. It seems to be part, you know, humanity and civilization. There is this there is this sort of flow that's going on in the universe that I may not know exactly what it is, but it seems to be, and we may use a word like divine, we may say it seems to be divine in nature. And that what my part of life seems to be is I can either work against that, I can go against that and suffer all sorts of consequences, or I, or I can try to be in alignment with that and with God if I choose to use the word God. And so if you and I were having that conversation and we said, what word would we use to describe that? If we start looking through the dictionary, we say, well, I, I'm not sure what word to use for that. One of the words would be Dharma. And so it's, it's a very old word that if, you, if you, you try to define it one way, it's, trying to, it's a bit like trying to grab a cloud in your hand. You try to grab it and you can't quite get hold of it. Right. Is it a little bit like the Chinese Tao, the T-A-O, the, the way things are? Mm. In res I can respond to it, but I don't mean this to be like, a, you know, a, an academic answer, because in that sense, I can't really answer it. It would, it would have, we'd have to look back into the actual teachings. Well, that's why I say just a little bit. I mean, it sounds yeah. like the kind of idea. I, I think it's, I think it's, it seems to me that it's fair to draw some approximation mm -hmm. to that. It's a hard one. The thing that makes it hard is because that puts me in the situation that you're asking me to compare one specific by name to another specific by name. Right. And, and, and I'm reluctant to do that. But 
maybe here's a way of responding to that. When I look at Tao, I see Dharma. Yeah. When I look at, you know, when I look at, we're talking about Baha'i, when I look at Baha'i, I see the flow of Dharma. When I look at any of the religions, I see the, the flow of Dharma. And incidentally, the word Dharma does not mean that there's a God named Dharma. It just... <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there might be somebody listening that would want to go in that direction. Yeah. Tell us about yoga. Tell us about yoga. There's another, that's like Dharma, tell us about yoga. I do these postures, and I think that's yoga. Well, the word yoga comes, and my pronunciation is not perfect, but it comes from the word yuj, which is usually written in our language with Y-U-J. And it means wholeness. It means to bring together, to join together. And there's there's two camps of thinking. Well, there's many camps of thinking, but uh, one would say that the word yoga is the exclusive domain of the Eastern religions, and nobody else can use the term. And another would say, no, yoga, like dharma, is a universal principle and is contained within religion. So in some sense, we could say the, the draw of the mystic towards that direct experience that may be called union or unity or wholeness or holistic, we use that phrase now, the drive towards holism, that if we were to go into Sanskrit and we would say, what Sanskrit word would we use for that? The word we would use is yoga. And in America, in the modern world in total, one of the things that's happened is we've reversed two terms. The word yoga has solely to do with that higher union. We may, we may define it differently, different peoples, but it has solely to do with that higher union that has something to do with spiritual or divine and that end of the spectrum. That's the entire purpose of it. So someone who, who is called towards that direct experience who would they go seek help from? Certainly a religion, but they would seek help from a yogi, whether that person was called a yogi or not. Well, now what happens is the term has been used as a physical exercise program. And it's in, it's one way of saying it is that we have inverted the whole and the part. One part, one small part of yoga has to do with having the physical body flexible and in good health, so that the energies of the body are flowing nicely, so that you can feel good, so that you can do the practices of prayer and meditation and contemplation. And we've reversed those terms. So the part and the whole have, have become confused. Within that higher sense of yoga, there are two views that says, you know, there's only one group of, of, of part of the world that can do yoga, and, and the other is that, no, it's a universal process. Personally, when I... You mentioned earlier, well, I forgot what it was, but one of the principles of Baha'i, when we were talking about ritual, you mentioned the, the use of don't do ritual. And then we talked about the fact, but yet there's standards of living. Well, don't establish Don't rituals. establish ritual. And the, 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 if I'm doing a routine in life and I'm doing it with the intent of attaining this wholeness, this union, if that's what I'm doing, this is a process called yoga. It has to do with meditation. Now, hopefully, most of our listeners are Christian. If I'm a Christian devoted to Christ, I believe that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, and uh, no one gets to the Father except through Christ, this sort of thing. If I were to go to your website and, and absorb your teachings, is there any part of my Christianity that I have to give up? Boy, that's a tough question. 
if you when you ask me which you are personally I, i'm going to say no you can keep your religion but we need to acknowledge that not everybody agrees with that not every christian agrees with that and not every yoga teacher agrees with that and not every hindu agrees with that not every buddhist agrees with that so there's a wide range of views on, on this thing but since you pose the question in terms of christianity you and I both live in a country that is predominantly Christian, so I meet a lot of Christian people. And this is just one of the ways that I deal with this. I'm not trying to... I, I even say on my website, if you're looking to convert religions, you have to go somewhere else because I don't know the conversion rituals of any religion. I don't know how to do it. So it's not what I'm about. But I do have a, a thing on there where I'm writing about Christianity, and I don't claim to be a scholar of those teachings, though I've read them. A lot. And I focus in on one simple instruction where there is a question posed to Jesus that says, okay, what's what's most important or something like that? And he says, number two, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But before that, he says, number one. He said, the Lord our God, the the Lord is one. And personally, I like that word one. It just brings a big smile to my heart because I read that one way. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then it says, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It says all four times. All of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. It doesn't, it doesn't say this, 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 comma, etc. And it has an and. It says all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. Well, if I pose this simple question to typical person I'm talking to with a Christian background, do you have access to all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all your strength? Or are those aspects you're being, are they being dissipated and confused in the chaos of, of life? And of course the answer across the board is no, I don't have access to all that. This is why I'm suffering. So the notion of yoga, this word all, I'm not trying to make this a literal, I'm not trying to do a syncretic thing and say that all the religions are the same and that and that Christianity is necessarily yoga. I'm not trying to play that game. But that word all is in there four times. And the word and is used as a connecting word. So one of the ways of saying this is that I have a job to do. That the other part, okay, fine. I'm not trying to take issue with whether God or Jesus or, or whoever or however that happens. But simply to say that each of us has a part to do. And if my heart, soul, mind, and strength are being dissipated because of my actions and speech and my thinking process, then I have a part to do in this. Let me change those so if I can have access increasingly. I may not be a perfectionist 100%, but it does say all, 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 all. The closer I can come to having access to all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength then maybe I can direct that, those four things together, maybe I can direct them towards the love of God, however I may hold God as he or she or it you, you know, right. may be. And to me, that process of all and and is the essence of what yoga is about. And uh, it's not anti-religion. It's not anti-God. It's just that that's not what its focus is about. The focus is about what do I need to do with my own body my own senses, my own breathing process, and my own mind. And if I will work, you know, with my relationships with the world, and I will work with my body and work with my breath and work with my mind, 
then I increasingly have a chance that my meditations and my contemplations and my prayers will bring me to some higher, better, divine something place. And, and that, in my opinion, that can be done in the context of any religion. You posed it about Christianity, so certainly within Christianity. And I would say the same thing about Baha'i. It just seems to me that there is a universal process. And to me, I don't think it matters that we call it yoga, but for convenience sake, it's a good word. And, and, and people have been doing this yoga stuff for thousands of years. They've figured out some stuff about the mind and the breath and the body and, and the autonomic nervous system. Long before people knew that there was scientifically an autonomic nervous system, these people were regulating the autonomic nervous system for the purpose of spiritual and religious process and insight. So I see it as a universal process. You said earlier that you thought yoga was a way of removing the false identities that we've... I'm trying to say temporarily set aside because, because I'm not, it's not talking about escapism. It, it, no. you know, I know you're not suggesting that. But, but it allows you to temporarily set them aside so you can see your true self. Right. And in that knowledge of your true self, it would seem like you would be better prepared to be a good Christian, yes. to do all the things that you're asked. Or a good whatever you are. Right. It would seem that way to me. And uh, yeah. If one is drawn to the esoteric end of the spectrum, the mystical end of the spectrum, the yogic yoga end of the spectrum, that simply choose to follow the, the path in a way that matches your own predisposition. And there are, there are people around who can serve in that way. Well, thanks, Swami. It's been fun talking to you, and I hope the uh, listeners enjoyed it. And you folks out there, remember, you're welcome to join us at any time. This is Swami Janeshwar. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. May your meditation today bring you peace, happiness, and bliss.